Well, it's already always pretty difficult to follow the peak excitement of a finance report, but I'll do my best. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Cameron Purse. Uh, you can call me Cam or Percy or Handbag or Wallet, all of which I have received at some point in my life. Um, see how creative you can get. But anyways, it's my privilege this morning to be walking us through the book, uh, well, at least one chapter of the book of John. And I don't know about you, but it's been so encouraging to be able to take, uh, I guess, a a closer look at what Jesus is doing and and what he's saying. It's been really refreshing and a joy to do so. And I hope it has been for you also. I'm going to pray for us now, and I invite you to do the same, to pray for me, to pray for yourselves but also to pray for each other that this morning we may hear from God in his word. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray that you settle our hearts now. I want to pray, Lord, that you help us to be open and honest with ourselves about where we're at with you. I want to pray, Lord, as we open your word, that we'll know that these are your words to us. And I want to pray that by your spirit you'll convict us, encourage us, and bring us to a fresh a new understanding of who you are, Lord Jesus. We commit this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know about you, if you have stories in your life where you've gone in with one expectation, you thought things were clear, in a sense the judgment had already been made, and then the complete opposite has turned out to be true. They've given away my my, um, story. But I was going to say that one of my favorite stories of this is not actually my own story, but the story of a famous sporting event, as you've just seen on the screen. I don't know if those of you already picked it up. But that's the story of Stephen Bradbury. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this story. It gets even more amazing when you hear a bit more of the backstory. He was a speed skater, uh, for those of you who don't know. Competed in the Winter Olympics several times, failed mostly. Uh, Until the 2002 Winter Olympics, things changed. Now, heading into this Olympics, the odds were pretty uh, pretty much all against him. In fact, no one really gave him a chance. Even he himself admitted that all the other skaters were better than him. I mean, Stephen Bradbury was from tropical Queensland. I don't even know if they know what snow is up there. And so he was born in the wrong place, wrong time. By this stage at the 2002 Olympics, he was already 30 years old and he'd just come off uh, an injury 18 months earlier where he'd broken his neck. And so not a good start, but he did well in his heat. He made it through to the quarterfinal. Amazingly, this was such an achievement. Everyone was already just happy with that. But this was really where it had to end. This is where it was supposed to stop. He was to go no further. It was a pretty bleak and hopeless situation until the incredible happened. Now, most people don't know this, but in his quarterfinal, he finished third, and he only was able to progress to the semifinals because the second-place guy got disqualified. And then in his semifinal, he was coming fourth on the last lap when two people in front of him fell over, and he finished second and found himself in an unlikely final. Already doing well. And if the semifinal and the quarterfinal were considered to be an unlikely long shot, then the final was considered to be impossible. You know, Australia had never made the final of this event. In fact, at this stage, we had never even won a medal, a gold medal, in the Winter Olympics. And on paper, he had no chance. These guys were the elite. They'd all won a gold medal previously. They were from countries where they saw nothing but snow. In most people's eyes, 
They were already patting him on the back saying, good on you for getting there, but you've already lost. Well, that was until this happened on the final few laps. And Ono moving up on the outside. Sue sees him coming, but Ono, there's nothing Sue can do about it. Ono goes wide and then cuts back in front. And now Ono, Lee has passed Sue. Ono is in second. Sue in third. Two laps to go. Bradbury way off the pace, and Lee is now the challenger for Ono. Lee coming up on the outside. One down. And Lee has gone down. Two down. Now Ono and Sue have Three down. They're all Four down. down. And Bradbury, who is in the perfect spot, skates over the line. You beauty. Australia's first ever Winter Olympics gold medal, Stephen Bradbury, is the champion. What an amazing turn of events. I don't know why that didn't happen in my sport, uh, tennis career, but I wish it did. But, like, that was not supposed to happen. To have, to have that to happen three races in a row, it's incredible. No one expected it. And despite everyone's judgments, despite everyone's poor expectations, even his own, it did happen. And as much as we laugh at that, today we're going to meet a man who had even less hope than Stephen Bradbury. And for this particular guy, it wasn't a, a sporting event, it was his life. And in the eyes of society, he had already lost. There was no hope. He well and truly, there, there were too many better qualified and better able in life, so he'd given up on hope. Well, that was until Jesus shows up. And so we're going to look at this story in John chapter 9. So why don't you, if you have Bibles, please open them. I'm not putting any text up on the screen uh, so make sure, this is a long story, and I'm going to go through it pretty slowly, so um, have it in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, John and Shabu are going to come around with it um, and pass one out. But before we get into that, I want to quickly remind people of the context of where we're coming, because context is always important. If you remember last week, we've just come out of a really long dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Jesus, at the beginning of chapter Uh, chapter 8 in verse 12 said that he was the light of the world and that all who followed him would no longer walk in darkness but would have the light of life. Now this is not the first time we've come across this idea of Jesus being the light of the world. In fact all throughout John so far we've been learning bits and pieces about what it means that he is the light of the world. If we go back back to the prologue in John chapter 1 verse 4 we read this, in him was life And the life was the light of men. And then in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So we learn in the prologue that not only was the life in him the light to, to all men, but he was the light to all people. Not a particular type of person, but all people. And once again, we learn more in John 3.19. It says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So we learn something new. We learn that there are primarily two responses to Jesus being the light in the world. Either people are drawn to him or people are drawn away from him. Those who do evil things and and love evil won't come to the light because it will expose them. But those who have no problem with being exposed will come to the light. 
And now coming out of chapter 8, where we heard that the true light sets us free, we come to this chapter, chapter 9, where essentially what we're going to see is the light of the world in action. We're going to see everything that has just been spoken about in chapter 8 in a real story, in a real man's life. But more than that, we're going to see also a lesson to the disciples about how they need to view the world around them. So we're going to read through this passage. And as I always like to say, as we read through this passage, don't just listen to it read, but try to really visualize what's going on in this story. Because this is a real story about a real guy with real hurts, real struggles, and real change. Try picture what is happening. So we're going to look at verse 1. We're just going to read the first two verses, and then we're going to stop there. Starting at verse 1 of John chapter 9. As he passed by, that's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, now let's stop there. Jesus is passing by. We don't really know where he is. The text doesn't say. But he comes across this guy who's blind from birth. Now, we don't really know how Jesus knew that he was blind from birth. Perhaps he was using some of his divine powers here, or maybe it was just obvious that this guy was blind from birth. Maybe he was well known for that very reason. After all, we find out later that you know, he's, he's, he's quite old and he's been blind for a long time. And, and his disciples, obviously noticing that Jesus has stopped and, and recognized this guy, he, they also kind of stop and, and they ask him this question. Perhaps they've been wrestling with this question for quite some time, I don't know, as they've gone around with Jesus. But it's a pretty interesting question and ultimately at its core, the question is, why was this guy born blind? Was it because he sinned or or was it his parents that sinned? Now, it's an interesting question and it reveals a lot to us about the assumptions of the disciples but also the assumptions of the people of that time. Because you see, they really only give two possibilities and neither of them are good for the blind man. It was either his fault he was blind and now how he sinned before he was even born, I don't know, but there was, a, time, there was a, a theory in this time that you could sin in the womb. Maybe some mothers can tell me that's true after a particularly hard kick or something, I don't know. But it's either that or his parents sinned and he was facing the consequences of their bad actions. And this particular idea came from the Old Testament at least some verses from the Old Testament that had been taken to mean something that they never meant. As an example of that, we have Numbers 14, 18. It says this, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the fourth, third and fourth generation. So they took these verses basically to mean that anyone who was born with any sort of disability, anyone who was born with some illness or abnormality to be a result of sin, either their own or their parents. And so essentially this blind man was in as hopeless a position you could get. Not only was he severely disadvantaged in the culture that he was in, which did not care well for people with any sort of disability or struggle, he couldn't get a job, he was already, already a beggar, In fact, his very identity was that he was the blind guy. We don't even get his name. 
But more than that, it was his fault or his parents' fault, and God was against him. A truly bleak and horrible situation. And yet Jesus gives an amazing answer to this question with only two possibilities. He introduces a third possibility. Let's look at it in verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. What an amazing turn of events for this guy. What an amazing response from Jesus. Because not only does he say that it wasn't his fault that he was like this way, or it wasn't his parents' sin that that had caused this, he actually says this was an opportunity. This man's blindness was for the sake of God's glory. This weakness was able to be redeemed by Christ for the glory of God. And so we have this hopeless man, judged by society, seen to have God against him, now told that his blindness was an opportunity for Christ to display his power. What an amazing turn of events. And I, and I hope you can see just the glorious truth in and of that, that it brings us to our first point, that Jesus, the light of the world, can redeem anyone with any weakness for the glory of God. No one is beyond the reach of the light of the world. And we saw that in the prologue. He is a light to all people, not a particular type of person. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus. You couldn't get much more hopeless than this guy. And yet Jesus says that he's going to bring glory to God through this man. Let this be a reminder to us this morning that the very things that we may perceive as weaknesses, the very thing that we may perceive as curses, as as simply just pure bad luck, the very things that we look down upon can be used by Jesus, can be redeemed by Jesus. He can use our weakness. Now, I don't don't know everyone's story in this room. I I don't know a lot of you that well. I know some of you well. I know some of, the, some of your stories. But I know that many of us carry weaknesses into this life, whether that be disability, whether that be illness, whether that be other things that people just don't know about. And it's so easy over time to view these things as God being against you, as simply you, just, you weren't born with as much luck as some other people. But this text is clear. God can redeem our weaknesses. Jesus Christ can use these things for his glory. This is what the light of the world does. No one is beyond his reach. Your very weakness, rather than being the result of bad luck and sin, is an opportunity for God's power to be displayed through you such an incredible thing. God's power is made perfect through weakness. 
But there's also a challenge in these verses. Because you see, I mentioned earlier that these disciples had, had already judged this guy. They'd already considered him to be without hope. In their eyes, he had already lost, and his weaknesses and troubles were too great even for Jesus. And I wonder for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus in this room, who we might be making assumptions about in our own lives. I wonder in our own lives who the people are that that we're thinking are beyond the help of Christ. You see, Jesus was trying to, to completely change these guys' view of the world. And I wonder if our view also needs to be changed. Who in our lives as Christians have we ridden off? Who in our society are the ones like this blind man who people would just judge and say they've got no hope? Perhaps it is those in a disability in your circles. Maybe it is those who you just, you just think God can't use them. Perhaps it's those with other struggles or difficulties. Perhaps it's the, the refugee from a country that is difficult that you don't understand or perhaps even like. Maybe it's that person who you've thought, nah, there's no way that God could use me to reach that person. Or perhaps it's just the annoying neighbor you have, or the boss who gets on your nerves. Who have you made an assumption about in your Christian walks? Who have we begun to believe is beyond the reach of Christ? These people are not beyond the light of the world. We need to realize that these weaknesses that we can see in people and can cause us to think that they may never come to Christ are the very people that God may redeem to display his glory. We have such an opportunity as disciples of Jesus to let his light shine through us but maybe we need to change our perspective a bit. Maybe we need to to wake up to this like the disciples needed to. We must pray for these people. We must pray that they may come to be used for the glory of God. You know, no one would have expected that Saul of Tarsus, murderer of Christians, could be Paul the Apostle, church planter, and writer of the New Testament. Jesus, the light of the world, can redeem anyone with any weakness for the glory of God. And we could stop here just in and of itself. There's so much in these beginning verses. But, but the story goes on. The story goes on. And, and it's an incredible story. So we're going to really pick up the pace now and just let the story tell itself. And so focus on the text. We're going to go through what happens next. So picking it up, I think, from verse Three, uh, sorry, from verse, I can't remember what verse I'm on, eight. So Jesus has just healed this man in a rather unusual way. So he, he spits in the mud, makes mud, puts it on his eyes, and then this guy goes off to wash at the pool. You can imagine this would have been quite a, a walk to the pool for this man. You know, what were some of the thoughts that went through his head? You know, perhaps this guy, Jesus, was just crazy. I mean, who puts mud on your eyes to to heal them. Perhaps he, was, he had to have some faith because he went to the pool still. I just wonder what kind of thoughts were going through his head. But, but regardless, he comes back seeing. He comes back to where Jesus had healed him. Jesus has disappeared somewhere. We don't know. But naturally, this healing causes quite a stir. 
And John, as he likes to do, he likes to record all the different responses to this particular miracle. And so we read in verses 8 to 10, some people were like, wait a minute, is that the, is that the guy who was born blind? And, and some are like, yep, we, we know it, that's him, that's him. And then some are like, nah, I, I, just, I don't think so. It's just someone who kind of looks like, kind of looks like him. And so we have some who are sure, some who are unsure, and some who are just plain old confused. But the blind man, who, can, who I guess I can no longer call the blind man, I guess he's now the used-to-be blind man, says to them, I am the man. You know, he, you can see the excitement in his voice almost. I am the guy. And so the logical next question, well, how can you see then? And so he repeats to them in verse 11. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So I went and now I can see. Notice what he says here. The man called Jesus. That's all Jesus was to this blind guy. He he didn't know who Jesus was. He was just the man called Jesus at this point. And so in response, the crowd in verse 12, well, where is Jesus? If he healed you, where's he gone? blind guy doesn't know. Sorry, formerly used to be blind guy doesn't know. No one else knows. Jesus done what he often does and he's disappeared. And so the people decide to grab this guy and bring him to, to the Pharisees. And then we receive a very important bit of information in verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now, for all of us who have been in John, that should get alarm bells off in your head because we've seen this before. We know that the Pharisees are going to have a problem with this. Despite the fact that Jesus has already told them that there was nothing wrong with healing on the Sabbath, that he will work as his Father is always working, they're going to have a problem with this. They aren't going to focus on the amazing miracle that's just happened. They're going to focus on, is he keeping the Sabbath properly? And so the next 15 verses or so in this story, it's like, a, it's like a scene out of a crime movie. It's going to be an interrogation, and there's going to be three parts to it, and we're going to see that as we, as we go through it. The Pharisees ask him in verse 15 how he received his sight. Well, he says the same thing. This guy called Jesus put mud on my eyes, anointed them, and I went and washed, and now I see. And the Pharisees, of course... Look for a way to disprove Jesus. They want to try the Sabbath tactic again. Verse 16, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But some of them, to their credit, don't react like that. They, they say, well, you know, if, if he's such a sinner, how can he do such incredible signs? So there's this little bit of a division amongst the Pharisees. And, and so they decide to solve the division. Great idea. Let's ask the blind man who he thinks, or the formerly used to be blind man, who he thinks... Jesus is. Verse 17, he is a prophet. So already we're seeing this this formerly blind man's view of Jesus is growing. Before he was just a man called Jesus, now he's proclaimed that he is a prophet. Verse 17, so so, so the blind man has gone from telling everyone that to he is a prophet. And so what do the Pharisees do now? Well, they know they need a different tactic. This whole Sabbath thing isn't working. So what they decide to do is instead not believe that this guy really is the blind guy. Until, verse 14, they bring his parents in. And this is part two of the interrogation scene. 
parents come in. In brief, they ask, is this your son? Yes, this is our son. He was born blind? Yes, he was born blind. How can you see? We don't know. Ask him. Really riveting kind of stuff. But we see that they actually say to ask him because they're scared, they're worried about getting kicked out of the temple, about being excommunicated by the Pharisees. And we need to take note of this because this is a very serious thing for a Jew. To be excommunicated was to essentially lose one's identity as a Jew, to lose one's religious identity. It meant you couldn't get a job. It meant that you had you lost your, your spiritual credit, in a sense. And so to avoid that, they, they basically say, ask him, he's of age. They deflect it back to their son. Questionable parenting tactics, but that's okay. So now that the Pharisees really believe that this is the guy, will they stop, confess their belief, and, and change their ways? No. They, they need a new tactic. This time, aggression. And this is part three of the interrogation scene. Verse 25, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. How do they know? Well, they know because that Jesus isn't keeping their misinterpreted Sabbath laws. And he's, he's been doing incredible sinful things. I don't know if you've noticed this as you've read through John, all the sinful things Jesus has been doing, like feeding the hungry and calming the storm and forgiving an adulterous woman and walking on water and healing an invalid, invalid and providing water to a woman, a desperate woman in the middle of nowhere and healing a sick man's son and, and giving sight to a man with no hope. Incredibly sinful person. And then we get this incredible response, verse 25. It's an amazing verse. Look at it and take it in. This guy's response, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. I'm sure we can all say amen to that one. What an incredible statement. And, and then you can really see the Pharisees, they're, they're running out of ideas. They're, they're starting to panic. They don't know what to do. But So they decide to ask again, so wait, what did he do to you? How did he, how did he heal, heal you? And verse 27, this formerly blind guy starts to get a little bit bold. Starts to get a little bit of confidence because he says to them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Then he gets really bold. Do you also want to become his disciples? Ooh, bad idea. And then they get really mad. And do you know how we know that they get really mad? Because they revert to their heritage. And I don't know if you've noticed this throughout John. Whenever they revert to their heritage, that's when they're really angry. Whenever they revert to Abraham or Moses. And they do that. In verse 28, they say, you are his disciple? But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Notice how in chapter 8 they were talking and reverting back to Abraham and standing upon Abraham. Now in chapter 9 they're standing upon Moses. This was their religious credentials. This was their righteousness. Interesting. Well, then the formerly blind guy pretty much slaps them in the face with his words. Look at verse 30. 
Why, this is an amazing thing. You, you do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Is that a slap or what? A theology lesson from the blind guy who's had no academic background. He's teaching the Pharisees? How God works? In fact, he slaps them so hard that it reveals their heart. Look at verse 34, how they answer this. You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And they cast him out. We get a clear glimpse into the heart of these Pharisees. They've tried all their tactics, and it reveals their hearts. In this answer, they ultimately reveal that they believe this guy was less than them. They believe that he was a sinner, and they weren't. We see that back in chapter 8, when they said that they had been enslaved to no one, but they were enslaved to sin. This has pride written written all over it, this statement. How dare you teach us, the all-seeing Pharisees? We see here Jesus' words really becoming true, that they were a master in the finite laws of God, but they missed out on loving God and loving others. That is what's going on here. And so notice they cast this guy out of the temple. They excommunicate him, And remember what we said before, this is a very significant move, as we mentioned. To be cast out like this is to lose one's identity as a Jew. You know, where where this guy was formerly, at the beginning of this chapter, really physically bankrupt, essentially what the Pharisees have done now is made him spiritually bankrupt. He wouldn't even be able to beg where he used to beg because he's being cast out. And we need to remember the significance of this at this point. It's easy just to think, oh, well, he's been healed of his blindness. It's all good. But at this point, he was still spiritually blind. He didn't know who Jesus was. That hadn't been revealed to him. So this is a new hopeless position for this blind man to be in. He's got his sight back, sure, but he's lost his whole identity as a Jew. He's lost his religious identity. He's being cast out of the false religion of the Pharisees. But once again, we see what Jesus does. Once again, we see the light of the world in action. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. What an amazing statement from this guy. He's gone from being physically blind and spiritually blind to being healed by Jesus in a miraculously, miraculous way to, to progressing from calling Jesus just a man who healed me to saying he's a prophet to now confessing that he is Lord and Messiah. And he worships him. It's incredible. 
Jesus finds this guy with no religious hope, no identity, and he rescues him. And I really want to highlight this. Really, it's the second point. The light of the world comes to those who are spiritually bankrupt. The light of the world comes to those who are spiritually bankrupt. And I, I think some of us here would have been in this situation or perhaps are in this situation today. We have this perception of religion that it's a bunch of do-gooders trying to be good enough. You believe that you could never be religious because you have too many issues. You have too many things going on in your life. You've gone too far. Perhaps you've even been burnt by a church in the past who had these religious standards that were too high. And you know, you know that if you really weighed up the scale, good works here, bad works here, it would go like this. You, you know that you wouldn't win that. Well, I have good news for you. Jesus comes to those who feel spiritually bankrupt, just like this blind man. The good news actually is, in part, you are right. You could never measure up. You are not worthy. Your bad works do outweigh your good works. That's the truth. But Jesus came for those who don't measure up. Jesus came for those who feel unworthy. Jesus came for those who know they are sick. And he reveals to them that he, in fact, measured up for us. He measured up upon the cross. He took our unworthiness upon the cross. That is the good news. And so here we have it. This blind guy has been fully restored. Physically healed and yet more importantly, spiritually healed. His eyes have spiritually been opened. While the Pharisees, they've missed the point completely. And now in these final verses, Jesus is going to reveal the point of it all to us. The point of this entire section, he's going to tell us very clearly what it is. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard him say these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So do you see what's going on? Jesus reveals his whole purpose. And this is our last point. Jesus, the light of the world, brings sight to those who know they cannot see and blindness to those who think they can. And this is what Jesus says to them in this last question of the Pharisees. The problem is, essentially was that they thought they could see. That's what they say to him. Are, are, we, are we also blind? If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. They thought they could see better than anyone else in society. They thought they had it together, but this was the very thing that was stopping them from having true sight. This was the very thing that kept them back from seeing. And so what, 
What an incredible turn of events that no one could have seen coming. A true Stephen Bradbury moment. On the one side, a blind man with no hope ends up being a true disciple. Where the Pharisees, with their intellectual, successful, academic and authoritative positions, are actually the ones who completely miss the point. They're the blind ones. They're the true blind people of this story. Jesus, the light of the world, brings sight to those who know they cannot see and blindness to those who think they can. And I think this last point really carries with it three lessons to three different types of people who may be in this room this morning. First of all, to to us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, this passage needs to be a reminder to us. It needs to actually be a warning to us to humble our hearts, to check our hearts, because it's so easy to shake our heads at these Pharisees. All the while in our hearts, we're beginning to become like them. We're beginning to think that we're the ones who see so clearly. We're the ones who are so much better than everyone else. It's so easy to let pride slip into our hearts. We've all done it. I've done it. We need to let this passage humble us to remember that we were in the exact same position as this blind guy. We were all just as helpless as this blind guy. Could not get out of it, but Jesus came to us and restored our sight. It was nothing of us, nothing of our brilliance and ability to come to Christ. It was Christ's work in us. Let that humble you this morning. And repent of those people you may be looking down upon. Repent of those attitudes of heart that may be boosting yourself up and pushing others down. Second, Maybe you identify really as the blind person in this story. You feel life circumstances and other things has has made you feel inadequate. Your struggles are just too great. But what you need to understand that these feelings of inadequacy, of unworthiness, they're actually the doorway into admitting that you can't see. To calling out to Christ that he will restore your sight. Your difficulties are not too great for Jesus. That's the whole point of the cross. He took those sins. He took those struggles upon himself. You can come to Christ with all your inadequacies and all your weakness. But to be honest, maybe some of you identify this morning as the Pharisees. Maybe some of you have realized that really you've never come to confess Jesus Christ as your only hope, as your only sight. Maybe you've realized that you're actually standing on your own version of Moses and Abraham. Maybe you're standing on your own spiritual righteousness. I don't know what that is. Only you know. Maybe you're sitting there and and you just ultimately think that you're a bit better than everyone else. But there's good news for you in that as well, is to just realize that you don't have it together, that you cannot see. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be actually really uncomfortable. It's going to take humility because it's going to mean admitting that you're not all righteous and you're not able to do it yourself. 
but you too can come to the light of the world, to repent of your sins, to repent of your own righteousness, to repent and cry out to Jesus. This is the good news of the light of the world. This light of the world can rescue anyone with any weakness for the glory of God. He comes to the spiritually bankrupt and he gives sight to those who know they are blind. This is a glorious passage that he came for people like you and me who understand the depth of our blindness, who have nothing going for them. And you see, Jesus, the light of the world, he can do this for us only because he was the one who experienced true and utter darkness for our sake. When he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the blindness that went so much further than we realized. All of our sins put upon him, the wrath of God upon Christ himself, he experienced that, that we might have life when we confess our sins to him, when we admit we can't see, he gives us true sight because of his work on the cross. But only if we realize that. Have you realized that you cannot see? And if you have, let today be a reminder. Let it humble you and let us say with this man, one thing we know, though we were blind, now we see. I'm going to pray for us uh, in a minute. But before I do, I want us to spend a minute in silence if you're someone who, who has recognized this morning that you aren't following Jesus, perhaps you're feeling in the Pharisee's shoes or, or the blind guy's shoes, when we, I want to encourage you to chat to someone this morning about that, myself or one of the pastors here. Um, but cry out to God now. He hears you. And for those of us who know Christ, I want us to take a minute to reflect upon the moment or the process when we were in darkness and Jesus gave us sight. To praise God for that in this minute, to, to bring glory to him because he's the one who did it. And after that minute, we're gonna, I'm going to pray and then we're going to stand and sing a song that was far too appropriate to avoid this morning, Amazing Grace. And so I'm going to give you a minute to reflect, to bring praise to God, and then I'll pray for us and we'll sing. As the music team comes up, Heavenly Father, we, yeah, we are humbled as we read through this passage at your grace to us through Christ, Lord. We're humbled by the fact that you as the light of the world would become darkness for us upon the cross. But we're humbled by the fact that we could do nothing to save ourselves and yet you rescued us. That we were all just as blind and yet you saved us. Lord, all praise and all glory goes to you for this, Lord. We pray as well for those in this room who may not know you, Lord, that they'll come to see the truth. Father, we thank you. And as we sing this song now, Lord, we do so to praise you. That though we were blind, now we can see, Lord. We lift up the glory to your name in Jesus' name.